Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. I'm joined with my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and today we are talking about the Stockdale Paradox, named after Admiral James Stockdale, but it might not really be a paradox after all when we start looking into it. So you've, you've heard about the Stockdale Paradox before, right? Yeah, just the idea of, you know, having uh, faith that you'd come through in a situation, but being very honest about the reality of the situation. I had to look it up. I uh, About a month ago, I had a reporter who contacted me from the Deseret News who wanted to do a story specifically on the Stockdale Paradox and Stoicism and how that would help us to deal with the COVID-19 epidemic and quarantines and all the anxieties it was provoking. And so I, I you know, I knew about Stockdale because I'd, I'd read him when I was an undergraduate and I'd taught him early on in my uh, graduate uh, career. And then in, in, when I was first teaching in, in prisons, they, he, was, he was a big um, uh, hit with, with prisoners, too, I should mention, by the way. And I, I never and thought. why I, is that? Well, you know, because he was a prisoner of war. And I'll, I'll say as, as well that, that stoicism as a topic tends to be pretty popular among uh, prisoners. So when you're teaching philosophy classes, they'll always ask you about that. Um, but, you know, I, I knew about Stockdale and it seemed kind of commonsensical to me what he was saying. But I, to a lot of people, it does appear paradoxical. So I had to go in and take a look at, at, you know, what the actual Stockdale paradox was and where it came from. And it didn't come directly from Stockdale. It came from an interpretation of Stockdale's ideas um, in, in some management literature that we can, I think we'll talk about in a little bit. And so, you know, as I was thinking about it, this is one of the things we'll talk about in the show. I was thinking, well, why is this a paradox to people? What is so counterintuitive or, as we sometimes say, mind-blowing about what Stockdale was saying to people? I think part of it is that there's been a, a large movement towards positive thinking um, in the United States over the past, what, you know, 40 years, so I think there's the, power, the book, The Power of Positive Thinking, and uh, through, you know, history, it's, you know, going back to ancient philosophy and also, you know, modern research on the topic, that that does not actually give you good outcomes as well as it could actually potentially be harmful. Yeah, and, and we can also talk about the positive psychology movement, which has a lot of good aspects to it, a lot of things we could be positive about, I think. But mm -hmm. there's there's other parts of it that I've always found a bit off-putting, you know, this emphasis in, in you know, Selig's um, positive psychology stuff about, uh, or Seligman, rather, about, you know, wanting to have a preponderance of positive over negative emotions. Um, I was always a little bit dubious about, first, how, how you actually count them. You know, he has people do a lot of self-inventorying, which is not a bad thing. It's always good to be paying attention to yourself and seeing what's really going on inside of your, your head and, and the reactions that you're having. But, you know, there was this kind of 
you know, story that it's, it's just better to be optimistic. It's better to be positive. It's better to be always on, you know, to be uh, social in that way and not to bring people down and not to bring yourself down when negative emotions might actually have some sort of value for us or might not be as negative as people define them as. There's definitely like a difference between being like, intentionally negative or like even to the the negativity that yeah, one yeah, gets when they're depressed yeah or but, or, and, or people who are like chronically negative because they like getting rises out of people mm-hmm. but if you you're looking at things as the actual like rational things that could happen that you know will happen to all of us if you think that these things won't happen to each other then we're going to set ourselves up for that failure that that disconnect between what we think reality will be like and the actual reality that we live in yeah you know i'll I'll level with you and then you can tell me whether this is the case for you as well i've gotten a lot of grief over the years from people who would say oh you're being too negative and i looked at it as being realistic as, as saying hey this is something that could happen here we should plan for this or you know you're saying that this person has got the cure for for whatever ails us that seems a little overly optimistic to me and that did not seem to be it might have been the way that i said it in in some cases a little bit too emphatically or uh other other ways of of you know doing things that that were not well received for good reasons but the message um by itself often didn't seem to be something that people were receptive to and i've gotten better at at kind of sugarcoating bad news about what we should what what we should assume is going to be the case uh, mm-hmm. as I've gotten older. I'm wondering, have you run into that yourself in the course of like you know your career, your relationships when you were in school? Um, were were you the eternal optimist or were you viewed as the pessimist or somewhere in between? Um, I guess part of being um, doing like science and engineering and, and computer science is that you're constantly looking at like edge cases yeah um and so you have to be aware of all of the pitfalls that are uh, it's it's inherent otherwise you have very bad outcomes and so um part of like just my training and my uh career is looking at all of the things that can go wrong um because those every T needs to be crossed and every I needs to be dotted as well as, you know, just in like common uh, conversation of, uh, you know, being careful about, I guess, giving advice when people don't want it. And, you know, there's something that I see with a lot of people is that they hold their ideas as, something that is uh, almost equivalent to them. And so if you say something that is... Yeah, and so if you uh, say something that goes against the ideas that they hold to be true, then they uh, feel like they are attack that you are attacking them. And and so sometimes it requires a little bit of, you know, verbal jujitsu to actually... uh, present the idea without them thinking that you're attacking them. Yeah. I mean, ideally, uh, Blaise Pascal points this out in his pensées. 
if you're really good at that, you get them to have that as their own idea, essentially taking credit for what you're putting on the table, which, which is mm-hmm. fine because you're not interested in the credit. You're interested in them taking seriously the warning that you're, you're trying to give them about something that, that could go wrong and, and harm them or harm their interests or damage them in, in some other way. Um, so, yeah, so let, let's talk about Stockdale himself. Um, not everybody yeah. is going to necessarily be familiar with him. And some people might be familiar with him from his ill-fated uh, vice presidential run as Ross Perot's candidate. Uh, his uh, Running that, mate? Yeah, and, and, and that he did not come across too well. There was a debate between... Him and was it Dan Quayle and and Al Gore, the vice Mm -hmm. presidential candidates? And it's one where we actually had three presenters up on stage because the Reform Party had enough of a um, backing at that time to to merit being on stage. I mean, I again, I'll level with you. I think third parties should be on stage all the time. I think we'd have much better debates about policy <laughs> if we let the Greens and the Libertarians and the Constitution Party and whoever else can muster up enough votes to, to be involved in it. Um, but he got up there and he just got like pummeled. And mm. um, people came up. Oh, go ahead. Pummeled by Dan Quayle is quite a feat. Well, yeah. Um, he, yeah, coming off... Two percent of the people actually said that he won the debate, and you got to say, "Wow, well, those must have been really committed people," or I don't, I don't know what they were watching, but everybody else said that, "Wow, th- this this makes it hard to take Ross Perot seriously that he picked this guy," and it's unfortunate because when you read Stockdale, um, he was actually quite a, a brilliant guy, and he understood that. Um, as, as you know, Clausewitz, the great military historian, had put it, taking this from Napoleon, that the uh, moral or the, um, we can call it the ethical or organizational stuff in, in military uh, tactics and strategy was way more important than just material or typical battlefield tactics or anything like that. And he carried that forward with him when he became a prisoner of war during the Vietnam conflict. And he, you know, I was rereading this earlier today. He was one of the top guys. So he knew when his plane got shot down and he was parachuting that if he survived, once he got into the prison camp, he would be the top ranking officer in the prison camp and therefore responsible for all of the other uh, American uh, well, airmen, right, uh, mm-hmm. un- under his, his command and the officers. So he, he wound up being a prisoner of war. Uh, and, you know, it's quite understandable that the Vietnamese were not happy about pilots in particular, given the bombings that were going on and, and mm-hmm. the, you know, the fact that they had been fighting the French first and then were fighting us. He was stuck in the prison camps for years and years and years, and he talked to... Over five years. Yeah. I mean, just imagine that. You know, World War II lasted less than that for us. Mm-hmm. You know, he was stuck. I mean, I mean, now we're in the time of forever wars. Uh, we've mm-hmm. we've been in Afghanistan for an entire generation and, and Iraq for almost an entire generation. Um, but that was pretty unheard of. Um 
at that time. And so he had to find a way to adapt. And he, he credits it to Epictetus. And having studied uh, both the Enchiridion and the discourses of Epictetus, and having all of those things, as he says, ready at hand when he parachuted down. And he also says, too, that he never told any of the people that, uh, whether his captors or his fellow um, American captives, that he was relying on Stoic philosophy to get through. But he, he says that that was essential to being able to manage uh, his prison camp experience. It might be interesting to wonder, ask him why he didn't share this if he felt that it was such a boon for him getting through his own ordeal. That's actually a, a really good question. And I would suspect that it has to do with not letting people in on the secret of your success. Mm. Right? You, if, if, and if it's going to work for the people that you're allies with, the people that, that you're comrades with, they don't necessarily need to know what book it's coming from while you're in the middle of the, the prison camp. Mm-hmm. It would be just fine to say, well, here's some principles. Let's put these into practice. Um, and you definitely wouldn't want your captors to, to know that if they can go and check out Epictetus, they might be able to figure out where your thought process is coming from, <laughs> right? That, that would be a, a bad idea. So I, th- I, I suspect that's probably part of it. But Epictetus also himself tells, tells us, don't call yourself a philosopher. Don't call yourself a Stoic because odds are you're actually going to embarrass yourself by, by not doing a very good job with it. So maybe that's part of it as well. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. Uh, I know. I just, uh, you know, there's always a very uh, pro-social um, aspect to Oh yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of the writings within Stoicism, and so uh, I find like, especially because he is a, a commander of men, that if he wasn't sharing these things, it seems like that would be, I don't know, uh, that he's not working with them as well as he could. Well, you know, according but, to his accounts, their their communication is very limited. They're ah. they're often having to communicate in clandestine ways. Um, you know, through codes and tapping and, and you know, um, leaving notes in different places. So I, I imagine that was probably part of it. Um, hmm. But, yeah, there's, there's probably more to be explored there. And, yeah. you know, the other thing that you can say is that, in a way, Stockdale... He, uh, he illustrates one side of Stoicism. I, I don't think that, that in, in the writings that I've seen from him... I don't see an awful lot of that pro-social, as we're calling it, aspect where you're supposed to be thinking about, you know, the community as a whole and really focusing on justice. It's more stoicism as a way of surviving the camps. He talks about, you know, when he parachutes down, he's he's coming into this domain in which, you know, uh, uh, ancient philosophy could could actually be like the norm because he's he's not going back into the Stone Age, but he's certainly going out of the modern technological. We can take a break from things, sort of sort of uh, environment. Right, and. This all kind of piggybats on our topic for last week, which was resilience. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we are far more capable of dealing with difficult things than we think, uh, and and part of this is is the mindset of, you know, uh, 
having that goal, that final, that faith, that wish that something that you'll get through it, but you know, knowing that this is going to be hard and you got to like just dig in. Yeah. You know, another thing that he did talk about as well that I was struck by in rereading this is that um, most of them broke under torture. And he said that one of the things that they really had to deal with was uh, a sense of guilt, that they would be brought back into the, the camp and some of their fellow uh, Americans would want to talk to them and, and they would say, don't talk to me, I'm a traitor, you, you know, you can't, it, essentially like I'm disgusting, don't look at me. And, you know, bringing up that resilience thing, I think one of the aspects of resilience is being able to pick ourselves up after we screwed up and failed to whatever degree. Sometimes it's like catastrophic, mm-hmm. complete failure, you know, <laughs> like watch everything fall down. Sometimes it's like failures that other people don't actually note, but we know that we failed. Mm-hmm. And being able to um, hold ourselves accountable without imposing all sorts of extra guilt or shame or whatever we want to call it upon ourselves. I think that's part of resiliency. What do you think? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the to you know the one idea is to bend but not break. To be able to you know go uh, with the flow and and not fail. But you know we all will fail at some point in time. Yeah. In the very end, we're going to die. So there's there's you know a final failure at least at some point. Um, and it's not something that we need to, I think, worry about um, too much. If it's part of life, then it, and everyone does it, then it can't be all bad. Yeah, that's true. And and you know, Epictetus reminds us, and I don't remember exactly where the discourse is. I think it's in Book Four, but he talks about Socrates' success rate. And Socrates is a hero, right? So mm-hmm. he, if anybody's getting things right, it ought to be him. And he says Socrates managed to reach about one in a thousand and convince them that they should change their life and focus more on their soul and less on their body and external possessions and try to cultivate virtue. So, you know, hey, if Socrates is batting, you know, what, what would that be? Uh, 0.001? Um, mm-hmm. No, I, I'm getting it wrong. It'd be like Socrates is batting point point one point 0.01. Uh, maybe it's not so bad if we're not successful all the time, you know? Right. I mean, there's kind of a narrative out there that presents it as if we need to be, if, if not successful all the time, if we do fail, we have to like find some way to you know, spin some gold out of that straw. You know, mm-hmm. we've got to, we've got to pick ourselves up and learn from the failure and then, you know, do an after action report. And I, I think, you know, sometimes that can be helpful, but a lot of times that just places undue stress on people. Um, there, there are times when we're just not going to be creative or particularly on point. Uh, my, my daughter was talking to me today about, um, needing to do some painting projects and just not feeling like it. And I said, well, that's, that's fine. You know, you paint when Mm -hmm. you can actually paint. If you're trying to force it, you'll get some results, but not results that you're really happy with. Sometimes you just have to, without, you know, being, uh, 
sort of lackadaisical about it. You have to let yourself fit into the, the groove that you can. But we're getting kind of far away from Stockdale. In these. Yeah. <laughs> Let's come back to, to talking about this. So the paradox, what, what is the paradox itself? What's paradoxical about what this guy has to say? He, he's in a prison camp. Um, he survives. He sees lots of other people who don't survive. And that's where I think the, the paradox is coming from, right? I think um, we look at this, there's a conversation between uh, Stockdale and Jim Collins that kind of comes to this point. And so um, conversation is, uh, you know, Collins says, who doesn't make it out? And Stockdale responds, oh, that's easy. The optimists. The optimists, says Jim. I don't understand. Uh, how he was, I'm completely confused. Well, given what he'd said a hundred meters uh, earlier, so, yes, the optimists, says Stockdale. Oh, they were the ones who said we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go, and then they'd say we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they die of a broken heart. Yeah, now, what do you think he means by a broken heart in that case? I guess he, they have set up for themselves in their mind's eye um, these illusions, I guess, you know, optimistic thoughts of, oh, we're going to get saved. And every time that they say, oh, we'll be saved by Christmas, or oh, we'll be saved by Easter, or oh, we'll be saved by Thanksgiving, um, it is a massive blow to, I guess, their ego or to their, um, their thinking, because they haven't already prepared for the, the opposite possibility. And it's really good possibility that they're not going to get saved at this point in time and this can go on and on and if you uh, never think about well what are the alternatives and you convince yourself that something will happen and then it doesn't happen that that's a big uh you know blow to your your psyche your ego yeah however you want to say that yeah you know i wonder too so we, we can sometimes say, well, everything's going to turn out okay. I've got faith that this is going to be great. You know, this will happen at this time. This will happen at this time. That's one way of being unduly optimistic. Maybe there's another way, too, in saying, well, at least this isn't happening. You know, this, this over here is bad, but at least it's not even worse than it is. And, you know, I wonder if there isn't there's, – there's, there's some – positive utility in doing that, right? In, in reminding yourself that um, I may be in solitary confinement, which is one of the things they did to these guys in the prison camp quite, quite a lot. Um, but at least I'm not being tortured at this moment in time, right? That might be a very helpful thing to do. Well, but, it's reframing. Yeah. But I think that a lot of people will, will at times get themselves tangled up by maybe picking the wrong, if we're talking about reframing, maybe they reframe it in the wrong ways, you know, because we could apply this not just to like being in a prison camp or any other similar situation, like being stuck under your car after a terrible accident or something like that, but we could apply it to being in a bad relationship or being stuck at a, a job that you, you hate, but you don't see a way 
out of because you know there's there's not a lot of other jobs out there um mm-hmm. and i and i think people do this a lot there, there's quite a few people who are like man if i can just hang on till the like i've seen it with educators if i can just hang on till the end of the semester everything's going to be great after that and then mm-hmm. things aren't you know or if i can just put in another year with this person i'm sure they're going to like turn around and finally love me you know mm-hmm. or, or pick pick any any sort of thing along those lines my boss will finally recognize me you know and i'll get promoted like i deserve you can also say well at least i'm not being fired and th- there is something to that but mm-hmm. in a way it's kind of like putting the bar lower and lower than than it ought to be and maybe that's a maladaptive kind of, it's not optimism as such, but it's sort of a consoling oneself. I would say it's, there's a, a difference in how much agency someone has. And so for someone mm. in the area of Stockdale, you yeah. know, he's has very little agency as a prisoner and, uh, the more agency you have, the more decisions you are given to actually deal with. And and so, like, talking about the, the person that's either the teacher staying in a job that they might hate or, you know, uh, someone that's staying in a relationship that um, is just not beneficial for them. Yeah. They still have lots of agency in those situations, and they... It would behoove them probably, you know, to have a, a better life if they made made some changes that are there. Uh, but first, you have to be aware of the the situation at hand. You have to call things what they really are, right? And so that's right. part of the Stockdale paradox. So part of part of the paradox is, um, and I guess this is why people think it's paradoxical, is that you're looking at things in two ways at the same time. You're, you're not being an optimist because you're being brutally realistic about the situation that you're in and, and, the, and the future prospects of it, right? If, if it's a prison camp, you don't know if you're ever going to be rescued. You might die before you're rescued. Mm-hmm. Um, you, might, you might break and be a, a psychological wreck or who knows, your, your body. In Stockdale's case, the, he, he broke his leg coming down and they rebroke his leg as well. And, you know, you, you read about this stuff and it's, you, you wince reading mm-hmm. about it. So there's that side of it. Uh, well, let's call that aspect A. And then there's aspect B, which seems to be optimistic, but it's not optimistic in the same sense as like the everything's going to be okay, things are going to work. Stockdale talks about faith that you would come through the situation in, in some way. But that's a bit different than I'm going to be rescued by Christmas or I'm going to be rescued by, by April or they're going to quit mm-hmm. being mean to me. And, and I think that what part of what Stockdale is, is, is implicitly relying on is something that we can find in Stoic philosophy and in other uh, traditions of virtue ethics, this notion that we have resources within ourselves that we can draw upon and need to uh, cultivate, even though we're not in the best situation for cultivating them, that then will allow us to make it through. So there's you, you mentioned agency. Part of what's going on with Stoic philosophy is the recognition that agency lies within, even when seemingly all the external agency has been cut off. We can still determine mm-hmm. our own attitude towards things. And not only can we, we should. We, we are, we're responsible for that. 
Um, so we got two sides there. Side B is, is something that seems optimistic, and, and Stockdale does use the word faith. We might also use the word hope, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but these have to be kept in mind at the same time. You can't have a single-minded optimism or else you're going to, you're going to founder. Uh, things are not going to work out for you by doing positive thinking. And, 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 and what you were talking about is positive thinking in a lot of cases excludes the looking at aspects that are just are what they are, uh, but get labeled as negative. Yeah. To look at reality and say that reality is negative, I think is a miscarriage of the word. I mean, we can say things are negative in this way or in this way, like Epictetus, again, or you're talking about him a lot, but he, you know, makes sense because Stockdale <laughs> talks about Epictetus a lot. Epictetus does say that you can be hindered, for example, in your leg. He and Stockdale are both lame, um, both by, by injuries to, to their legs. Um, and you are, in fact, limited. I, I have a similar thing. I'm missing two, two ligaments in one knee that I injured uh, at the beach almost a decade ago and haven't gotten replacement ligaments for probably never will. So, you know, I can't run on that leg and that Mm -hmm. means I can't run on either leg (laughs) because you need them both. Right. And so that's an impediment to running, but it's not an impediment to doing leg presses or to walking carefully or to, I I don't know, uh, doing, doing other things. Right. So we, we can, we can realistically recognize that there could be things that are negative. Um, You know, is, so uh, go to ahead. bring in uh, Victor Frankel, who also oh yeah dealt with being in prison, and he was um, a psychologist, and he was a Jew that was imprisoned at the um, death camps for, uh, for the uh, during World War Two. Yeah, the by Nazis. the Nazi regime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he wrote a book, a really lovely book called uh, "Man's Search for Meaning." And he, part of it is his recounting his experiences within the camps as well as the other part is his idea of uh, the psychology of what is going on there, which is, has a lot of parallels to uh, what Stockdale has. And he's got uh, a couple of quotes. So those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by the lack of meaning and purpose. And so this is kind of that idea of that, like, wish or hope uh, or faith that, you know, the end result will be good. um, And you don't put it in, like, any temporal terms. Yeah, and and maybe one of the aspects has to be on determining what really is good. I mean, if, if good means getting to eat as much candy as you like, uh, your life is probably not going to turn out okay, whether you're in a prison camp or anywhere mm-hmm. else. I mean, you know, in, in today's industrial society, if you wanted to pile up candy around yourself, you could do that. And then once you've got diabetes, uh, you maybe have to cut back a bit, you know? Um, you, you, and Victor Frankl talks about a story of um, these really gaunt men going around and giving away their food because they had made, you know, in his words, their meaning to be those that are charitable to go around and to take care of everyone that they possibly could. Yeah. Um, and and even though they're very gaunt, they were the ones that survived. 
So, you know, it's, it's interesting that he uses the word meaning there. That's, that's a very modern word. And I see, um, I see a lot of people in, when they're looking at virtue ethics or they're looking at philosophy as a way of life, they, they talk a lot about meaning, finding meaning in this, finding meaning in this. It's not something that we see a lot in ancient philosophy. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's as if the, the concept didn't exist, but we don't have words for that sort of thing. We do have purpose, right? Uh, in the, like what we're doing things for. Um, and I, I wonder if, if that, do you think that's important that, uh, there's like a newer way of articulating it that kind of catches, I think it's, it's actually a positive step that we identify something as meaning. Uh, and we say that that's, that's part of what makes a life, a valuable life, a good life, even if we're in terrible circumstances. Right. Uh, Absolutely, especially the like. There's a purpose, but like meaning is like a purpose of life, is it not? To a certain extent. Yeah, they, although they, sometimes we talk about finding meaning, and it doesn't sound exactly like it's the end purpose, but it's it's in what we're doing. Um, like when people talk about, oh, you're you're mentioning service to others. Um, mm-hmm. When you're when you're engaged in that sort of thing, it's not the end result. It's the process itself, right? Mm-hmm. And we can say similar things too, I think, about relationships. As a matter of fact, a lot of relationships go off the rails when people are too end purpose centered on things. You know, I want to, I want to, you know, get somebody to wash my clothes and, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, have sex with and uh, help with the finances and things. Okay, those those are all good parts of the relationship, but that that can't be all that's going on there if it's going to be a good romantic relationship involved with you know cohabiting <laughs> if there's all, it's the, all the process same. not the end or yeah the, well, the journey I, not I, I the want, destination i want to say that both of them matter though um mm-hmm. that we do have to have uh, people who say it's the journey not the destination or or have that trope it's really the friends we met along the way you know <laughs> i think that's important but that's that can't be the totality either you know, and again, we're very far away from from in talking about this. I think from the prison camps that Frankel and and uh, Stockdale were were in, but I think it could well, be useful to to clarify yeah, that and and to also like maybe bring in the existentialists just a little bit because they were a lot of them were talking about creating your own meaning that there oh, is oh yeah no, very good yeah yeah um actual meaning out there for you to find that it is always up to you um is very something you can roll in here because you you now have a why you're creating the meaning the goal that you are setting for yourself um in here that it's not out there to be grabbed or grasped it's interesting the atheistic existentialists among whom we could include and granted, some of these people rejected the title of existentialist. But, you know, if we're talking very broadly, we can talk about, say, Martin Heidegger and Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. All of them were kind of down on hope. And they, they thought that maybe, you know, you actually ought to engage with the despair um, mm-hmm. that, that, that life brings, which means that you, you're reliant, the way Sartre put it, you're reliant on your own resources. Everything that you do could like founder, if it involves somebody else, they could like not show up to do what they're supposed to do. 
But that's it. You're stuck with it. And then Camus, you know, he, at least in the myth of Sisyphus, um, a little bit less so in his later writings, he, he's, he's down on hope because he thinks that hope leads to um, too optimistic of a viewpoint on things. But Gabriel Marcel, who uh, was, by the way, the first person to use the word existentialism in French, um, he talks about hope as being very important. And, and he doesn't think that the world is absurd the way that, say, Camus or, or, or Sartre think it is. He actually talks about the world as being mysterious, rather, meaning that there's, there's uh, something to be revealed that we can't get at with sort of technologically oriented ways of, of problem solving. But we have to uh, you know, grasp what he calls some, the ontological depths of things. But he, he talks about hope. And he's got a really nice characterization of it early on in his works where he says, hope consists in asserting that there is at the heart of being beyond all data or, or things that we can observe, beyond all inventories and all calculations, a mysterious principle which is in connivance with me, meaning that there's something within the order of things that's going to work with me. I don't know what it is. And it may not, and he, he follows up and says, it may not actually give me what I want because, it, it, you know, I have to actually want the right things. So if, you know, getting out of the camp by Christmas is what I want, that doesn't mean that, you know, the cosmos or the universe is going to cooperate with me and open up the, the doors because maybe the cosmos doesn't care about that or maybe that's not the best thing for me. Um, but but the things that are genuinely, and, and I think the Stoics are kind of, you know, again, they, they view things that, in a way like this too. If what we desire is the right thing for us to desire, um, having this, this sense that things will cooperate with us to some degree, things that are, that are outside of our control, um, that can help to see us through. And it may turn out that nothing does cooperate with us, but we can, we can um, at least try something. You know, and somebody else who, who this reminds me of is William James. I, I don't know. Have you ever read The, the Will to Believe? It's a really interesting short essay. I have not. The, the famous line from it has to do with the fact that the robbers of the train, you know, this is back in train robbery days, mm-hmm. right? They, there's like four or five of them. They get on the train, and they can all expect that their comrades are going to follow their leads, right? Whereas all the other people in the, the, uh, the train, you know, say 60 of them, they could easily rise up and attack these train robbers but there's no coordination between them, right? And part of the reason is because they don't have any hope of being able to overcome them individually. And James, he talks about how there are some things that we could believe in and legitimately believe in, but we can't really grasp them as, um, or we can't verify them, let's say, unless we originally trust and make a move. So you think about going out on a date, right? You, you want to date somebody. You looked at their profile on social media. You think that you're compatible, maybe used an app to connect with them. You're like, let's go and have dinner together and let's see, see where this goes, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you get there and you demand proofs of, of their affection at every moment, you're never going to get anywhere, right? You have to like mm-hmm. try some stuff out. You have to you have to put yourself out there and take a risk. And if you if you wait until, you know, you've got like in 
incontrovertible evidence that this is going to be the right person for you because the algorithm said so or something like that. I mean, even even trusting in the algorithm is trusting in something you don't you don't understand, right? If right. you if you don't launch yourself into that, you won't get the confirming experience that that then allows you to have that belief. And I think that a so lot. So it's a, a leap of faith there. It's it's kind of it's kind of a leap of faith, but. But kind of not, because it's not um, launching into something you have no idea about. Mm. Um, And there could be like... Testing the waters maybe is a better... Yeah, there could be increments to it, right? Like you you try something small out first, and then you you get a little bit more confident and a little bit more confident. And there could be like a feedback loop almost. Uh, But... but James is stressing oh. that there's 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 a lot of things in our life that we absolutely have to do this way, mm-hmm. you know. Um, w- there's there's no way we're gonna be able to like calculate everything before we do it. Yeah, this you bring in the existentialists and and, and James as well kind of all seems to roll into this uh, or remind me of uh, Simone de Bolivard and her book um, The Ethics of Ambiguity. Yes, and and her her final. Mm-hmm conclusion that like as we go through our existential crises and realize that we need to make our own uh, meaning and kind of like become akin to maybe what uh, Nietzsche would call the overman or something um, that or sorry the yeah overman ubermensch uh, that uh, we realize that we can't actually do all the things unless we have other people who are also like us who are also right. having and creating their own meaning and uh, living their own lives for their own sake. Yeah. And, and that's kind of like a, a pro social outcome of, of a, in a hope that we can make ourselves the, the world around us better. Yeah. And that is where her approach like blue Sartre and Nietzsche out of the water. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, yeah, you're right. The, the Nietzschean, whatever the Ubermensch is, which he's very clear, we're not, you know, <laughs> but we can, we can maybe prepare the way for, or, you know, who knows, maybe become something kind of on the way to it. Um, whatever that is, um, it's, it's kind of a solitary being. It may, it may have just a few fellow Ubermenschen to hang out with, but, you know, he says that it's as far above the normal human as the human is over the ape. So not a lot of like engagement with, with others. Um, and then with Sartre, you know, Sartre thinks that there really is no meaning. We have to create it. Um, the world is essentially absurd. And uh, de, de Beauvoir says, no, the world is not absurd. The world is ambiguous. And she, you know, the ethics of ambiguity is her attempt to provide what Sartre, her lover and partner, was totally unable to provide, an existentialist ethics. Um, And so, yeah. I don't know if he's unable, because maybe he just saw the ethics of ambiguity (laughs) and said, like, well, frack it, you know? No, I I don't know that that's the case. (laughs) I can't actually top this. I don't know. It's kind of hard to say that he could not. Uh, he did not. Well, he struggled, but he, he, he tried he to. And and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, if we were talking in sort of like the sense of bare possibility, he could have put things together in such a way as to derive a better ethics. In point of fact, he didn't. And, and Simone de Beauvoir comes along and and does provide it, you know. But in, in any so, case, go ahead. We should probably move on to our question here. 
Yeah, so coming back to the Stockdale paradox, right? The need that, that we, we have to be brutally realistic and avoid any undue optimism and yet have a kind of faith that things are going to turn all right. We have a, it's, it's kind of a challenge rather than a question coming from a friend and colleague of mine, Chuck Chakrapani. He said, personally, I've always wondered if Stockdale mistakenly attributed optimism as the cause of some soldiers perishing. My observation has been that true optimists ignore it if their predictions don't pan out. <laughs> They're so optimistic, is what he's saying, that they they ignore the evidence that things aren't working. They revise their predictions to suit their optimism. In October, will be out by Christmas and come January, it will be out by Easter and so on. And he says, actually, I have a business partner who does that, really doesn't seem to shake his perpetual optimism. And that psychological studies also favor optimism as more favorable to uh, survival. Now, I, I, Stockdale does talk about people moving the benchmarks. And, mm -hmm. But it seems like Stockdale thinks that you can only do that so long. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, you, you have to admit it. If Chuck is right, then there are some people who are able to be perpetual optimists and continually tell themselves things that there's really no good evidence for. Uh, actually, there's plenty of counter evidence, right? And they keep mm -hmm. on making predictions that things are just going to work out. And in a William Jamesian sort of way, their very faith that things are going to work out helps to produce the outcome that they want. Now, so what's the difference or what's the line between in extreme optimism and being delusional? Well, that's what I was going to say. I think that at a certain point, you know, to, to be optimistic in that way means to keep on denying important features of the context or environment that mm -hmm. one is in and one's own resources as well. It, it's thinking I've always I've always got what I need to be able to handle this sort of thing. I just have to you know stay chipper or. Um, Look at the, the bright side of life or what, whatever it's going to be, right? Mm -hmm. I, this, this brings to mind the, the, I believe it's a quote attributed to Einstein that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different outcomes. And if yeah. you're optimistic and you're doing the same thing over and over, oh, well, just next time it will happen, next time it will happen, eventually you need to look at this and realize that what you're doing isn't doing the things that you want it to do. But here's the question that, that comes with it. Can this sustain a person? Can this allow them? It is, we could say maybe what they're doing is insane, but can we say that they're, it's functional? They're able to keep themselves going until whatever liberation, if there's ever going to be a liberation, will, will occur. Or, I mean, maybe... Maybe we have to think about, like, what else are they losing in the process by being out of touch with reality? Are they... This is a question that I, th I think the best answer that I could give is, I don't know. And the, it might require some more research to actually get a better answer. I mean, my experience, and, and, and since, you know, Chuck is bringing up just experience, I think it's perfectly fine for each of us to bring our experiences in. My experience has been that people who are unduly optimistic and unrealistic about the circumstances that they're in tend to make things worse for themselves over time and tend to create all sorts of additional burdens for other people that they're connected with. 
And so I don't, I don't think that they are really successful in, in most cases. Um, I mean, it's, it, there was a, a cartoon character that some people might be familiar with, Mr. Magoo. Um, and he was this, this really dense guy who would constantly create chaos around himself. And he was always going along perfectly fine. He had these big, thick glasses, couldn't really see anything. And he would like, you know, touch like a, you know, a snake that's poisonous and think it's a cane and just use it that way. And you'd be like, wow, this guy's really adaptive to his environment. Yes, except that he creates total chaos around him and suffering and, and you know, car crashes and, and all sorts of negative outcomes for people. So I don't think it's really adaptive in any real sense. It's almost like they're, it's a being privileged, uh, you know, by reality to be the one eye in the, the, the center of the storm, right? And I don't even think that it, that's, I mean, Mr. Magoo is a fictional character. I don't think that that's really the case for most people. I think most people who are unduly optimistic, there's usually something going on there that we can pick at and probe and say, why are they so? What, what's the need to be so optimistic that they have to deny the reality that they're facing. I I don't know. I think the only thing that's coming to mind is like the TV show Dharma and Greg, which was kind of that oh. basic idea where Dharma's you know, kind of fighting yeah, yeah. And, and totally optimistic yeah, and Greg yeah. is a straight man who has to deal with picking up all the things and, and dealing with this person. Um, and every once in a while they learn a lesson about each other, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, standard sitcom fare, yeah. whatnot. But, um, but I, I see, I, I've had like relationships with people who are not resilient, and they they do have have like a you know an optimistic you know like kind of like the secret, uh, you know, put it out into the universe and they'll come back to you or whatnot. Yeah, and um. And I think they're just setting themselves up for for failures. That like what they're doing isn't actually based in something solid and concrete. And and you're I guess you're creating a subjective world that is not quite mapping onto the real. Yeah, and you know to go back to the origin of the, this, calling this a paradox, right? Um, Collins was interested in companies. His book is called Good to Great, and he's looking at companies that were doing well and then started doing even better. And he identified the Stoic paradox as one of the characteristics of, of good to great companies. Um, the Stockdale paradox. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, his his view about this was that in a business environment where, you know, you're dealing with things like limited resources, competition, you know, all, all of those sorts of things change in, in the environment due to innovation or, or other factors. Um, you have to be realistic about your circumstances rather than just like creating reports that look, look good to the stockholders and to, you know, whoever else is looking at the company. You've got to actually face the challenges that the company has or else you're going to sooner or later run into problems. Reality will, will hit you in the nose, you might say, with, with a a rolled up newspaper like you're a, a bad dog or something if you if you don't if you don't pay attention to it um, I suppose you know if we want to use that metaphor then at least you you know when to duck if if you're paying attention to the reality um, right. and so I, I, that's that's that seems to be my response to this this challenge that's posed by Chuck I don't think that optimists like that can hold on to that optimism 
relentlessly forever. I, I'm in agreement. I think we should move on to our practice here. Yeah. So do you want to lead us through that? Yeah. So uh, this practice here is a more uh, recent practice. It's called WHOOP. And it's uh, was developed by uh, Gabrielle Attengen. Um, and she's a research psychologist. And um, it's got a, a couple of things that we've already talked about. Like part of this is negative visualization. And the whole idea here is that it's, it's packaging it together. And so the WHOOP stands for uh, Wish Outcome Obstacle and Plan. And so the idea here is you're trying to... Uh, find the best outcomes for your goals that you're setting for yourself. And I felt this was very useful for thinking about the Stockdale paradox. And we have a, uh, a wish that is going to be our out- final outcome. And, um, and, but being very uh, aware of the problems, the obstacles that we are going to be doing. And so uh, the wish is you make a big goal, uh, uh, that hope for wish, and then the outcome is the, the positive visualization of how it feels to do and accomplish that goal. Um, and the, then you, right after that, you have to make sure that you actually look at the obstacles and you negative visualize to see all the, the possible things that could hinder you in this. And you dwell upon those as well. And then you make a plan. And so this is a uh, implementation, implementation um, imperative. And so it's a if-then statement. So if, when, or when some um, obstacle happens that you've been thinking about in your obstacles, then I will do some action to overcome that obstacle. And so you want to think about all the major obstacles that you're going to be facing. And so I guess in the terms of Stockdale here, we would be talking about, um, oh, uh, they're going to come and they're going to torture me. And I need to, you know, steal my resolve and uh, think about what is the actual true good thing here, especially if he's talking about Epictetus, then he's thinking that the true good is my actions and the, the pain in my body are, are not the true goods. And so I can focus on what is the true good here. Um, or, you know, being stuck in the hole or, you know, just dealing with the boredom. And how, how am I going to think about dealing with those things when those things actually happen? I already have a plan to do those things. Um, and one, actually go. Well, I was going to ask you, so is this something that then would be iterated where, you know, we we say, you know, uh, oftentimes, you know, wash, cycle, repeat, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So you you go through this entire process of having the goal, figuring out what what it is that you actually want, you know, some values clarification, thinking about the outcome that you're aiming at, thinking about the obstacles that are in the way, and then coming up with the plan. Uh, and that gets you to, to this stage, but there's probably going to be new obstacles that arise coming out of the action that you do, or maybe doing the action itself raises, wait, wait a second, I'm going to need this in order to be able to do the action, right? Or I need to get other people to be involved in this. I can't do this all by myself. How will I persuade others? So does it sort of branch off into multiple uses of this, this same thing? Yeah, absolutely. And you can use it for, like, your wish can be a big goal, or it can just be a small goal. Like, hey, I want to change a habit. You know, a simple, like, I want to go running every morning, or I just, you know, I want to come home and not turn on the TV or something along those lines. (laughs) Yeah. You know, 
little things, but you can also use it for big things, and you can break up those big things into smaller things. You could heck, you could say like, I'm going to do a whoop, and part of the um, the uh, the visualization of how you're going to accomplish the goal will be more whoops. See now, this, uh, I mean, when you when you're talking about this, this this seems like something I would want to do because it feels like something I have been doing, right? Yeah. Something that I, that um, people who are doing successful decision making or problem solving or whatever whatever else we're we're going to be concerned with in moral life have to do um, if they're going to be. It's not the only way to do it, but but this is one way to be successful at it. So. Is this something that we could we'd need to do in an explicit way, or is it okay to do it in kind of an, an intuitive um, or implicit way? What do you think? Do I we think, benefit by making uh, it explicit? I think so, especially because there's a lot of people that will not do the negative visualization point. I think that's that's probably <laughs> the, the that biggest. Part. Oh yeah, is, you know, everyone was. Oh yeah, I'm going to get an A on my uh, test, or I'm going to get the job, or I'm going to you know all. But you don't think about like, okay, well then, what happens when I need to uh, deal with the consequences of not getting those things? So it those, means those it, are going to. Be- it's sort of like in Cards Against Humanity. I don't know if you've ever played that. That oh yeah. Game. Okay, so there's 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 a card that has do something. That's like step A, and then step B is a big question mark, and then step uh-huh. C is profit, right? Right. Now, it, it looks great on paper, but what's that What's that middle part? <laughs> you know, if you don't have right. that, then how are you going <laughs> to get the profit? That's that's the, the, the key where everything comes together. So you're saying that if you don't actually figure out what the obstacle is, it may as well be like that card from Cards Against Humanity. Right. And one of the things I found out recently was really interesting that they did a study on basketball players and they had two groups um, of varying skill levels and they had one group practice doing basketball hoops and the other group just thought about doing basketball hoops and for those people who had at least some skill in basketball both groups um, increase their ability to do hoops because the brain is very easily tricked that imagining things are uh, running the same pathways as the actual doing of those things. Yeah. Well, that's that's a great thought to sort of finish up on. We're getting close to the end of our hour. Do you have any last ideas, thoughts, uh, things that you want to say about this topic? If you get in a hole and you can't get out, maybe the Stockdale Paradox is for you. Okay, that, that's that's fitting to end on. So we'd like to thank you for listening. Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs>